We have seen a couple hiccups on the voyage to where the Israelites are here. Nothing compares with what happens in Exodus chapter 32. Moses has been gone on Mount Sinai for about 40 days. Meeting with God, receiving the law, receiving instructions so that God's people can live for his glory amongst other nations that don't know him. It's not the first time he's been up there. But this is the first time that God's people get a little nervous about the fact that Moses is not yet with them. And what happens is something that, hap- that hits much more close to home than we want to admit. The big idea that we see in Exodus 32 is that you and I are easily led astray by counterfeit gods. But the Lord is faithful to forgive, to restore, uh, and to restore us when we return to him in faith and repentance. And there are four ways in which I I, I see that uh, in this passage. The first is that we need to be careful to not only recognize, but also avoid idolatry. You know, when I was in college, I took a class called the Philosophy of Religion. Uh, It wasn't really a class on what it said, the philosophy of religion. Rather, it was what's wrong with Christianity. And uh, one of our conversations in class landed on idolatry. And uh, the professor was a Unitarian Universalist. He uh, did not like Christianity so much. And I don't remember what he said that triggered uh, what I said to him, but I vividly remember saying to him in the middle of class, you are an idolater. You have created a God in your own image after your own likeness. He wasn't very happy with me when I said that, obviously. But um, he did respond with saying that he couldn't be an idolater because he was not bowing down to wood, to gold, to images. Now, I was out of line. I was young and stupid. I might not be as young anymore, but I'm probably still a little bit uh, uh, need to think through those things. But I did learn something, that if this college professor who's super smart in philosophy believes that idolatry literally means bowing down to gold and to wood figures, um, then most normal people probably believe the same thing. They probably hold to that belief that when they think of idolatry, they think of images that we'll see in verse 5 here. And because of that, most people think that the second commandment is antiquated in our culture. But when it comes to the biblical understanding of idolatry, the Heidelberg Confession perhaps has the best definition for us. It says, Idolatry is having or inventing something which to put our trust in instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And so when we we put it in that way, we can actually see the danger in it, can't we? It, It is taking anything, an idea, some abstract concept, and putting it in place of or next to on the same level as God. God is the greatest being in the entire universe. 
He is the creator. He is the holy one. Scripture tells us that it is by his power that all things are held together. The earth is spinning right now because God has not decided to stop its spinning. He commands us to worship him and nothing else. Yet we are so easily uh, easy to abandon him and flee to things that we think will fulfill us. So the question is, how can we guard ourselves against idolatry? How do we recognize it? And how do we avoid it? The first, I think, is to know how our hearts work. Scripture tells us, especially in Proverbs, that the heart is the wellspring of life. It is the command center of your being. Every action you do, every word you say, every thought you have is an indication of where your heart is. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart uh, is um, deceitful above all things. It can lead us astray. And in chapter 32 verses 1 through 6, uh, it tells us a great deal about how our hearts are tempted toward idolatry. And the first thing is, is that our hearts are tempted toward idolatry when we are uh, impatient or distrust God. We are inclined to idolatry when we are impatient with or distrust God. Look with me in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and said to Aaron, Up! I love that. Aaron, get up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So, the people knew that, God, that Moses was on the mountain here, right? And they knew that he was going to receive revelation from God. But as far as their concern, Moses wasn't coming back. Moses is gone. He was consumed in God's glory. Now, one thing that we have to push rewind here on a second is we need to remember that the Israelites spent 400 years in Egypt. Not in Hebrew worship of, of Yahweh, the biblical God, but completely influenced by the pantheon of gods in the Egyptian system. And it's helpful to remember the predicament that they're in here. They were enslaved for 400 years. They were delivered by the hand of Yahweh, the biblical God, who they didn't know at all. They were delivered by walking across the bottom of a sea that was dry as the sea parted for them to go across to the other side. They were wandering in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, but yet this God rained bread from heaven. Quail came up in the desert. Water was given to them from a rock. They had seen the power of God descending on Mount Sinai in the form of a severe thunderstorm. Really, the entire story of Exodus is all about Israel learning who God is. 
they were confident that Moses was interacting with this God. And in such a short amount of time, they have seen the miraculous ways that this God has come through for them. And now Moses, who is their intercessor between them and God, uh, has been gone. They haven't heard a word from God. They haven't gotten anything from him. And it sort of makes them nervous because here they are in the middle of the desert with no guidance, no help whatsoever. And they're starting to believe that maybe God has left them. And maybe without Moses, they wouldn't know how to worship properly. And so they retreat to what they knew in Egypt, worshiping idols, physical objects, believing that if this Yahweh isn't here to help us, then we need to make gods who will go before us. And you might look at this and you say, this makes absolutely no sense. Why would someone carve, whittle some wood and then bow down to it? But this sentiment is something that every single one of us is guilty of. We have both a patience problem and a trust problem with God. When we don't see God answering our prayers or coming through in the way that we think he should, how quickly are we to move on to what we think is the next best thing? Well, obviously God's not here, so I'll just drown myself in alcohol. My prayers aren't coming through, so I'll just turn to food because that makes me feel better. I'm not getting healed quick enough, so I'm just going to go off to some, any old natural pathologist that's going to give me the answer. I don't have the things I think I need, so I'm going to go in debt to get what I think I need. I'm not satisfied in my marriage, so I'm going to go find someone on the side to fulfill my needs. I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to manipulate any way I can to fill that need. We'll jump to anything if we have to wait. But that impatience is only indicative of a lack of trust in God. We don't trust God enough to wait. We don't truly believe that he is good. But also, we're tempted to fall into idolatry when we misuse his gifts and attach ourselves to those gifts. Look with me in verses 2 through 4. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, the craziest thing about what's happening here is remembering where this gold came from. Look with me in, in chapter 12, uh, in 33 through 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out. They said, we should all be dead. The people took their dough before leavened and kneaded it into bowls and bound it in their cloaks. The people also had done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver 
and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked for. They plundered the Egyptians. So here we see that just before they left Egypt, God put it in the heart of the Egyptians to give them gold. Do you see the significance of this? The gold was a gift from God. It was a reminder to them that as they wore it in their ears, as it, as it dangled, as they felt the weight of it, it was to remind them of what God had done for them in Egypt. And now they have taken it and they've used it against God. And we read this and, and it's easy to say, are you serious? Like how ungrateful are these people? But our hearts are exactly the same. Look at what it says in James chapter 1.17. It says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow that's due to change. So everything that's good in your life is from God. Your life, your family, your, your job, your home, your stuff, your health, it is all from God. Yet how often do we use these good things that God gives us for our own selfish purposes, for our own desires, and live in ungratefulness? You know, maybe our idolatry isn't so much fashioning some sort of uh, figure and worshiping it, but maybe all our idolatry is taking whatever we have so that we can worship ourselves. We use God's gifts. Uh, we, we are tempted towards idolatry when we misuse God's gifts. And we're also tempted towards idolatry when we hope in something other than God. Look in verses 5 and 6. Uh, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And it's interesting that Aaron, he, he so quickly abandons everything that he knew about God here. And I don't think it's necessarily a lack of his faith that we see here. I think it's a lack of leadership. He just bows to the wills and the wishes of the people. And for us, when we're impatient, when we're distrusting, when we misuse God's gifts, we move into trusting other things. The government our own intellect and abilities, money, perhaps fate or chance. Maybe we, uh, we um, trust in our relationships or trust in doctors. And when we stop and we have a clear thought about what is actually going on in our hearts, it's rather incredible to see how quickly we'll trust in anything but God. And so uh, what is the result of this then. Verses 7 through 9 tells us that the result is that God's wrath is kindled. Look in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people uh, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a golden calf, worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. 
So many read this, this and, and say something like, man, God's got a real temper problem here. But uh, if we remember that Exodus continually points us to the glory and the holiness of God, we see that there's nothing greater than him, then it makes sense that what these people are doing is committing cosmic treason and that God is exercising justice here. And his wrath, his controlled anger and judgment is the only fitting punishment for idolatry. And so the question is, how can we sinful people, idolatrous people, avoid this wrath? And that's what the, the next two much shorter points are going to uh, uh, show us here. So our second point then is that we need to be bold in prayer. Be bold in prayer. Look at how Moses interacts with God. He, uh, Hebrews tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is holy. He's separate. He is just. He is good. But he's also terrifying. And so Moses here offers a prayer on behalf of God's people in a bold manner. Look at, verse, look at three ways in which Moses boldly approaches him. The first is that he uh, appeals to God's redemption in verse 11. He asks, why are you so angry with those that you redeemed? These are your people, God. Have grace. Don't have wrath. Second, he appeals to God's reputation in verse 12. He asks God, why do you want to hurt your reputation? If you do this to your people, won't the Egyptians, won't the world see you as a God that is not good? And thirdly, he appeals to God's covenant promises in verse 13. He says, look, you're a God of promise. If you do this, you're going to be breaking your promise. You promised Abraham. You promised Isaac. You promised Jacob. You promised your people when you were delivering them that you would do this. If you Wipe them out. You're telling us that you're not good on your word. And notice what happens when Moses is bold in prayer in verse 14. It says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing uh, on his people. God hears Moses. And you might say, well, I mean, that's Moses and, and, and I'm me. How does that work? But James tells us that the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And that if we are in Christ, we have been given his righteousness. And our prayers go up to God and he hears us. James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 uh, tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But ask in faith without doubting. Now, obviously, it's talking about wisdom here, but the idea is essentially the same. I don't pretend to know how prayer works. There's an element of mystery that's involved with prayer. But God tells us to pray and that he answers our prayers if we're in Jesus. So when you're tempted to idolatry, when you're tempted towards sin, the answer is not to fall into it and distance ourselves from God. The answer is to press in deeper and closer to God in relationship through prayer. And thirdly, we need to be repentant of sin. 
be repentant of sin. You see, when we fall prey to idolatry or, or any sin, it's important that we call sin for what it is. Look in verses uh, 15 through 20. Moses turned, went down from the mountain, the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. Tablets were the work of God. The writing uh, was the writing of God engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made and, uh, that had been made and burned it with fire, ground it to a powder, scattered it in the water, and made the people drink it. Sheesh. It's sort of a strange incident, but um, what Moses was doing here... Uh, was that he had a right to be angry. He is calling out their sin, taking the calf, burning it down, crushing it into a powder, making them drink it so they can taste the bitterness of their sin. And we need people in our lives who will call out and point out the subtle nature of our idolatry and our sin who are not afraid to call a spade a spade, and people who are willing to stand by us as we drink the dirt of our actions. But further, we need to stop making excuses or blaming others. Now look in, in verses 21 through 24. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you brought out such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people, they're set on evil. Uh, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It's kind of a humorous seen because of its utter ridiculous. Who would believe Aaron here? But Aaron is simply an inflated version of what happened in the garden when God confronted Adam. Do you remember? He said, Adam, what is this you've done? What does he say? Hey, God, the woman that you gave to me, she made me do it. And it's very illustrative of our hearts. You, she makes me so angry. Really, she forces your heart to go against your will and become angry. It's not my fault. Well, God made me this way. This is just how I am. Oh, it's just human nature. Or I, I'm just too poor. I'm a victim. Society dealt me a bad hand. It was my upbringing. It was my parents. That's the reason that I am the way that I am. And we need to stop making excuses and start owning up to our sin taking responsibility, uh, admitting before we're caught, and asking for forgiveness. But digging even deeper, we have to choose sides. Look in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And on that day, about 3,000 men fell, or people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing to you on this day. Now, now this is weird. You say, this is an awfully brutal passage. What in the world is going on here? But what, what's really going on here is that God is asking who is on my side? Whoever's not for me is against me. And so this slaughter is an extension of God's justice. You know, uh, these are people, again, who have caused uh, cosmic treason, who will inevitably influence other Israelites to disobey God and follow other gods. And this is just a small foretaste of what will happen if we don't know Jesus Christ. So many people will say, well, this is just an example of the Old Testament God who is all full of wrath. The New Testament God is loving. But folks, if we look at the New Testament, what happens at the end of the New Testament, this God here looks gentle. And so it's better to acknowledge our sin now, repent of it, and boldly pray, and finally be receptive to God's grace. That's our final part, our final point. It's in this point that we see the heart of of true love. We see the heart of a true leader. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. Now I'm going to go to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for you. Man, Moses is going to try to make it right for his people. He's going to go before God. He's going to make atonement. But notice the manner in which he, he does it. It's totally radical, and if we can get our minds around what he does here, it'll totally change the way that we look at God and totally change the way that we look at faith. In verse 31, Moses reminds God of Israel's great sin, and now look at the appeal of verse 32. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book, out of your book that you have written. In essence, he's saying, God, forgive them according to your mercy, but if you can't do that, kill me on their behalf. Let the judgment that falls on me be credited to them. Moses here is asking God to do the very thing that God himself will do years down the road. Because though Moses was very noble here, He was a sinner, and time and time again in the Bible, the only way that sin can be atoned for is in a perfect, uh, unblemished sacrifice, and Moses wasn't that. He was just as sinful as his people, but what he was doing was pointing forward to one day what God would do himself in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God came in the flesh, Live the perfect life that we could not live. He earned the righteousness that was, was, made him perfect morally and unblemished morally. He took the punishment of the sins of his people. His righteousness was credited to them. Their sin was credited to, to him. 
And this is the radical nature of Christianity. God's grace freely given to a person through Jesus Christ as the substitute for their sin. And it can be yours by receiving it, by trusting in it. You know, every bit of idolatry that we succumb to can be completely wiped clean. And we can not only be given a new slate, but we can be given a life of righteousness that doesn't belong to us in Christ Jesus when we trust him for what he has done. You know, idolatry is alive and well today as it was back in ancient times. We love to chase things that promise much and deliver little. But the only way to true satisfaction is the proper worship of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a knockoff product. And he will always deliver. Why not trust him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great word here, God. Would you change our hearts? Would we see Christ fresh? Would we see him new? Would you give us a heart of faith today, God, to know you, to repent of our sin, have true life as you created us to have? Lord, do that miracle in our hearts today. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, on the first Sunday of every month, we come together as a body of believers to remember what Jesus had done through what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. It's a time when we take of bread and we take of juice uh, to remember that Jesus' body was broken on our behalf, that blood was shed for us. If you are uh, in a covenant relationship with Jesus, that is that you've repented from your sins, you've trusted him to be the only uh, way that you can be right with God, you're invited to this today to take and to remember. If that's not you, if you're not at that place yet, that's fine. But I want to ask that you would allow these elements to pass by you so you can see tangible reminders of what Jesus has done for you. We will take of the bread first. Uh, the bread is gluten-free, and so it's safe for everybody. We'll hold on to that till everybody's got a piece, and then we will take it together. Then we'll pass out the juice. We'll hold on to it till everybody's got uh, the juice, and then we'll take, to, we'll take together. But uh, as I pray, I'm going to ask those that are serving communion to come forward. So let's pray together. Father, on the night that you, um, that you were betrayed, that you uh, gave of yourself uh, for us, Lord, you commanded us to remember you through communion. And so, Father, as we take these elements, the, the bread and, and the juice, would we be reminded of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf? Would we take with grateful hearts, not in mourning, but in great celebration, knowing that this is just the down payment for the victory that you were going to have one day at the end when you come back in glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sins away, plain for us. 
On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread, he gave thanks, and, and said, um, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. Oh. 
Thank you. 